Chapter 9 in A Woman Who Went to Alaska by May Kellogg Sullivan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This recording by Karen Cummins. Chapter 9 Nome. The man who had predicted that we would find no comforts in Nome proved himself a true prophet. There were none. Crowded, dirty, disorderly, full of saloons and gambling houses, with a few fourth-class restaurants and one or two mediocre hotels, we found the new mining camp a typical one in every respect. Prices were sky-high. One even paid for a drink of water. Having our newly found Alaska appetites with us, we at once, upon landing, made our way to an eating house, the best to be found. Here a cup of poor tea, a plate of thin soup, and questionable meat stew with bread were served us upon nicked china, soiled table linen, and with blackened steel knives and forks for the enormous sum of one dollar a head, which so dumbfounded us that we paid it without a murmur, backed out the door, and blankly gazed into each other's faces. Such prices will ruin us, gasped the madam. That table linen. Ugh, shuddered the young man. Fifteen cents in California for such a meal, growled the English girl in her matter-of-fact way and with wide, distended eyes. While I found such amusement in watching the three faces before me that I barely found breath to remind them of the two tons of nice things in their own packing cases at the landing. If only they are soon landed, groaned Madame and we set off at our best gate to find the cases. But we did not succeed. The freight was being unloaded from the ship, we were told, as rapidly as it was possible to handle it. But one lighter and small tugboat in a very rough sea, unloading a ship two miles off the beach, must have time. And we waited. Only two or three lighters were to be had at Nome. Other large steamers were being unloaded, and hundreds of people were hourly being landed upon the beach. There was no shelter for them anywhere. Every building was full, and confusion was badly confounded. To make matters worse, it began to rain. If we could only find our freight and get our tents, beds, supplies, etc., we would be all right. But it would be impossible that day, we found, after making repeated excursions through the freight house and numberless inquiries at the office. Something must be done, but what? I now remembered some Dawson acquaintances in town made the fall before while coming down the Yukon River with my brother. To one family of these I made my way. They were in the grocery and bakery business on a prominent corner on First Street, and their signboard caught my eye. Blessings on the heads of kind Mr. and Mrs. M. of Nome City. They were delighted to see me. They lived back of the store in one room, which contained their bed, stove, cupboard, baby organ, table, chairs, and trunks. But they also owned a one-room shack next door, which was vacant for a few days, being already rented to a dentist who would make some repairs before taking possession. I could bring my friends and baggage into this without charge if I wished, until we secured our freight, Mrs. M. said kindly, and I pressed her hand in real gratitude with many thanks. 
I am almost ashamed to show you the room, said the kind little woman as she unlocked the door of the shack and stepped inside. But it is better than no shelter in this rain, and you can have a fire in the stove, pointing to a small and rusty coal heater in one corner. I wish I had some blankets or fur robes to lend you, but everything I have is in use. You are welcome to bring in as many friends as you like if they will share the poor place with you, and you are quite safe here, too, for you see the barracks are just opposite, pointing across the muddy little alley down which a few boards had been laid for a sidewalk, and the soldiers are here to keep order, though they do sometimes find it a rather hard job. Then I thank the little woman again most heartily, and as I took from her hands the door key and stepped outside into the rain to bring my waiting friends and baggage from the freight house, I offered a little prayer of thanks to our good father and hurried away. At the steamer's landing, all was hurly-burly and noise. It was now late in the afternoon, still raining at intervals, and muddy underfoot, though the weather was not cold. Finding my English friends, I told them of Mrs. M.'s kindness and offer of her room, which they were well pleased to accept with me, and we gathered up our luggage and started for the place. Passing through the freight house on our way to the street, Madam said, pointing to the figures of two women huddled in a corner, See, Judge R. from the St. Paul has not found a room yet, and Mrs. R. and her friend, the nurse, are sitting there, waiting for the judge to return. His wife is nearly sick, and they have no idea where they can get a room. Judge R. has been looking for hours for one without success, she said in a sympathetic tone. Let us speak to them said I, going over to where the ladies sat. Hearing their story, and seeing for myself that both women were cold, hungry, and disheartened, I decided on the spot to share Mrs. M's hospitality with them, made the proposal, which they very thankfully accepted, and we trailed off up the street laden with luggage. Then Madam's son was found, informed of the situation, asked to bring Judge R. and a few loaves of bread from the shop, along with the remaining luggage, to our new camping place in the little board shack near the barracks. Seeing us arrive, and that the three elderly ladies looked worn and travel-stained, Mrs. M. urged us to come into her room and take tea and crackers, which she had already placed upon the table. This invitation the older ladies gladly accepted, while the English girl and myself looked after our new lodgings. Here now is a state of things indeed. The entire stock of luggage for seven grown persons was soon deposited in the middle of the floor. The room of which the shack consisted was about eight by ten feet square, set directly upon the ground, from which the water oozed at every step of the foot. Two small windows, a front and back door, with a small stove. That was all. These were our accommodations for the night, and perhaps several nights and days. Then we two set to work with a will. We swept the floor, we gathered sticks for a fire, we threw boards down outside the door upon which to walk instead of in the mud, a pail of water was brought from a hydrant after paying 25 cents for it, and a box was converted into a table. Luggage was sorted, lunch baskets were ransacked, while tin cups, coffee pot, knives, forks, and spoons were found, 
with a fresh white cloth upon which to spread the food. When Judge R. finally appeared, it was supper time. He carried a tin fry pan under one arm, a bag containing one dozen eggs, and a few slices of ham on a paper plate, for which articles he had paid the goodly sum of one dollar and seventy-five cents. Waving the fry pan above his old gray head, the jolly judge shouted, See, the conquering hero comes. Oh, but I'm hungry. Say, how in the world did you get this place? I hunted four mortal hours and failed to find a shack, room, or tent for the night. Four thousand people landed here today, and still they come. Jerusalem crickets, what a crowd. Everybody is in from Dan to Beersheba. We will have 15,000 people here soon if they don't stop coming, and no shelter for them. Then changing his tone and glancing toward his wife, and how is my dear little wifey by this time? Tenderly patting Mrs. R.'s white hand, which belonged to a woman tipping the beam at 200. Aren't you glad we came? I am. Then rattling on without giving his wife a chance to speak, for her eyes had filled with tears. I think I've got a case already. Claim number four on D Creek. Jumped last winter while owner was away. Jumper won't leave. Talked with owner today. Think I'll get the job, said the hopeful old judge, sitting on an empty cracker box and eating bread and cheese from his fingers. Eat your supper, dear, to his wife, who was taking nothing. And you shall have a bed tonight the best in Nome City. See, there it is now, pointing to a big roll of dark brown canvas done up with a few varnished sticks. A folding cot, new patent, good and strong. It'll need to be strong to hold you up, won't it, dearie? Now, please, take your tea like a good girl to brace up your courage, or would you like a drop of sherry? To all this, Mrs. R. shook her head, but she did not speak. Neither did she attempt to eat for there was a big lump in her throat which prevented. The rest of our party enjoyed the supper. Some sat on boxes, others stood up, but we ate ham and eggs, bread, butter and cheese, tea and crackers, pickles, jellies and jams, as being the greatest comforts we could find in the camp, and we made them speedily disappear. At last the supper things were cleared away, and remaining food repacked in the baskets. The patent cot was unrolled, set up, and made ready for Mrs. R., who was the only one favored with a bed. The others finally faced the proposition and prepared, as best they could, their chosen floor spaces for their beds. All slept in their clothing, for we had no bedding, and the night was cold. The two men were banished to the outer air, where together they smoked and talked of affairs of the day while we women unbuttoned our shoes, took out a few hairpins, cold-creamed our sunburned faces, and then, between jokes, stories, and giggling, we settled ourselves, with much difficulty and hard snuggling, among our bags, raincoats, steamer rugs, and wraps on the rough board floor for the night. Coming in later, the judge spread his borrowed fur robe upon the floor beside his wife's cot, covered himself with one half of the same, chuckling as he did so. I'm glad my bones are well cushioned with fat and that I'm old and tough and like this sort of thing. I say, wife, isn't it jolly? 
and the portly and sunny old judge dropped off to sleep to keep me awake most of the night by his snoring. If I slept little that night, I did not waste my time. My brain was busy forming plans of action. It was not wise to have only one plan, for that one might fail. Better to have several. And some one of these would probably succeed. I felt a good deal of anxiety to know whether my father or brother had or would come to Nome. If either or both of them came, I would have no further difficulty because I would work for and with them. But if they did not come, what was I to do? I had little money. I would not go home. I would work. I was a good cook, though I had never done such work except for our own home folks. I knew that cooking was the kind of service most in demand in this country from women, for my travels in Alaska the year before had taught me that. I could teach music, and I could paint passably in watercolors and oils. In fact, I had been a teacher of all three, but in Alaska, these luxuries were not in demand. I could not expect to do anything in these directions, for men and women had come to Nome for gold, expected to get lots of it, and that quickly. They had no time for Beethoven's sonatas or watercolor drawings. It was now an urgent question of food, shelter, and work with all, and the man or woman who could the quickest devise ways and means, the one who saw the needs of the time and place and was able to supply those needs, was the one who could make the most money. Of course, being a woman, I was unable to do beach mining as could a man, and as many men expected to do. Those who brought large outfits and plenty of money with them were immediately obliged to hire help, but it was generally a man's help, like carpenter work, hauling and handling supplies or machinery, making gold washers and sluice boxes, or digging out the gold in the creeks. None of these could I do. On the steamer, all these things had been well talked over among ourselves, for others beside myself were wondering which way they should turn when they found themselves in Nome. As to there being any disgrace connected with work of any sort, it never entered my head. From a child, I had been taught that work was honorable, and especially for a woman, housework and cooking were respectable and healthy service. So I had no pride whatever in the matter. It was only a question of finding the work, and I did not doubt my ability to find it somewhere. On the voyage from San Francisco, I had thought well of the three Swedish women and believed they would succeed in their proposed plan of restaurant work. I said to myself that if I were obliged to seek work, I should like to be with them if possible, or at least with some of the lucky Swedes, as the rich Anvil Creek mine owners were usually designated. These miners all hired cooks for their camps, as they kept large numbers of men at work day and night on the Anvil Creek claims, the season being so short for placer mining in this country. Anvil Creek was only four miles away, and the Star Restaurant, as my friends had already named their proposed eating house, would be headquarters for all the Scandinavians on Anvil and the entire district. For this reason, and because the three had so many acquaintances who would bring them patronage, and because their pleasant faces and agreeable manners always made friends for them, I felt sure that they would be able to give me work if they chose and I so desired. 
Then, too, there were the several Dawson families of my acquaintance here, and I would find them. Possibly some of them might give me work if I asked them. However, the first move to be made was to find our freight and baggage, and a spot upon which to pitch our tents, and the sooner that was done, the better, as the best and cleanest camping places were fast being appropriated by the newcomers' hourly landing. It was not easy to find a clean, dry spot for a tent, as I had found the day before that the black, soggy soil was hardly free from frost a foot down, and this made it everywhere marshy, as the water could not keep down nor run off where it was level. Someone on the steamer who had been in Nome before had advised us to pitch our tents on the sand spit at the mouth of Snake River, as that was the cleanest, driest, and most healthful spot near fresh water that we could find, and my mind was made up that it was to the sand spit I would go. Many had been the warnings from friends before leaving home about drinking impure water, getting typhoid fever and other deadly diseases, and without having any particular fear as to these things, I still earnestly desired a clean and healthful camping place. This, then, was the way I planned during most of the first night after landing in Nome. If I slept, it was towards morning, when I had become accustomed to the regular and stentorian snores of the old judge, or when, for a few moments after turning in his sleep, his snorts and wheezes had not yet reached their loudest pitch, and when my wishes had shaped themselves so distinctly into plans for work that I felt relieved and full of confidence and so slept a little. Next day, I looked for my father. At the landing, on the streets, in the stores, at all times I was on the lookout, though it was a difficult matter to find anyone in a crowd such as that in Nome. I saw several acquaintances from Dawson the year before, and people from different steamers that I knew, but not my father. At nine o'clock next morning, three of us started out to find the sand spit with, if possible, a good camping spot to which we could take our freight as soon as it was landed, and part of our number was detailed to stay at the landing while we investigated. Down through the principal thoroughfare, we pushed our way, now on plank sidewalk, now in the middle of the street if the walks were too crowded, but going to the west end of town till we came to Snake River Bridge, where we crossed to the sand spit. At the toll gate we easily passed, as all women were allowed to go over free, men only being charged ten cents toll. Here we quickly found a clean, dry place on the riverbank, a hundred feet below the bridge and two hundred feet from the ocean, which we chose for our tents. Now arose the question, would anyone have any objection to our pitching our tents temporarily? Seeing some men striking camp nearby, we asked them. They told us that we could get permission, they thought, from an old captain nearby on a stranded boat, now being used as an eating house, and to him we went. He was not in. Going back to the sand spit, it was decided that I should remain upon the spot while my companions went back to the landing. I was to remain there till some of them came back. This I did, sitting on a box in the sunshine with my Kodak, umbrella, and lunch basket beside me for hours. When Madame returned, saying their search for their freight was still unavailing, I left her in my place and again called upon the captain. 
Calling the third time at his boat, I found him and secured his ready permission to temporarily pitch our tents upon the sands, for he was an alderman with adjoining town lots, he told us. By six o'clock that afternoon, a part of Madam's baggage and freight was found, hauled by dog team through town to the sand spit, and deposited upon the ground. Then we bestirred ourselves to get a tent up in which we could sleep, as I, for one, was determined not to be kept awake by the judge's snores another night if I had to work till morning. The others shared my feelings, and we worked like beavers till midnight. By that time, a small tent had been put up, boxes of bedding unpacked, as well as cooking utensils, oil stoves, and foods, so that we could begin cooking. At the continuous daylight, we were much pleased. Coming gradually into it as we had done on the steamer, we were prepared for it, but the advantage of a continuous day to a busy, hustling camp like this one had not presented itself to us until we ourselves attempted to work half the night. Then we realized it fully. At nine in the evening, a beautiful twilight enveloped all, restful to nerves and eyes, but still light enough to read by. At ten o'clock it was lighter, and upon the placid waters of Snake River, only fifteen feet away, lay quiet shadows cast from the opposite side, clearly and beautifully reflected. A few small steamers lay further downstream near the river's mouth, rowboats were tied along the edge of the water, and on the sand spit below us was a camp of Eskimos, their tiny canoes and larger skin boats being hauled upon shore beside them for safety. At midnight, the sun was almost shining. The air was salt, fresh, and clear, while the sky seemed to hang low and lovingly above our heads. After eating a midnight lunch of our own getting of bread and butter with hot tea, we deposited ourselves, still dressed, upon the tops of Madame's big packing cases, from which had been taken pillows and blankets and slept soundly till morning, notwithstanding the fact that the hammers of hundreds of carpenters were busy around us all night. Next morning, all felt fresh and invigorated. The sun shone brightly. In the roadstead two miles away lay several newly arrived steamers, their deep-toned whistles frequently sounding over the intervening waters. It was a beautiful sight and welcome sound. How easily the long and graceful breakers rolled and broke upon the sands. With what music the foam-tipped wavelets spread their edges, like the lace-trimmed ruffles on some lady's gown, upon the smooth and glistening beach. How the white tents everywhere looked like doves of peace just alighted, and the little boats danced up and down on the river. I was glad to be there. I enjoyed it. Nothing, not even the hard work, the storms, nor the bitter Arctic winter which came afterwards, ever effaced from my memory the beautiful pictures of river, sea, and sky repeatedly displayed during those first novel and busy days at Nome. End of chapter 9